I want to start by taking you someplace where it's going to be, feel like it's coming out of left field and you'll wonder if you're in the right room. But uh, trust me, I do have a point and I will get there. How many of you have seen uh, the latest Top Gun movie, Maverick? Yeah? What'd you think of it? Did you like it? Yeah? You know, the, the, it's, it was a great movie, really well done and all of that. What you typically hear about that movie is they don't make movies like this anymore. Have you heard that one before? Doesn't it just, everybody's just, it seems like that was coming up over and over again. And it's true to an extent. I saw a podcast. Someone uh, sent a podcast to me, and I actually watched it because I usually don't have time. I don't know why, but I did. And it was talking about this phenomenon of movies and how they progressed from the golden age of Hollywood into the 60s and 70s and on through the 2000s and where they're going now and why Maverick was such a throwback. And they were basically talking about it in terms of modern, postmodern, and metamodern. Have you, how many of you heard of metamodern? Okay, yeah, of course you have. Our, our, our cultural literacy expert over here has heard of it, of course. Now, what does that mean, and why is it significant, and why am I talking about it? Well, I guess we need to start. If we're going to understand what these three terms mean and how they apply, we've got to start with modern. What the heck is modern? And I will tell you what, if you look these things up, sometimes it's hard to get a definite definition, a definite definition. You know, the, the, the thoughts are all over the place, and it's, it's really kind of squishy. But the modern period is generally talked about as extending from 1500, the year 1500, to about 1945 in the West. So it was then that Western Europe woke up to what we now call the modern period. And why around that time? Well, a lot of things happened in quick succession. First of all, Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks in 1543. Um, why do we care about Constantinople? Well, it was the seat of the Byzantine Empire for about a thousand years. And while Europe was still kind of wallowing in a feudal sort of system and, and local monarchs, the Byzantine Empire was the height of uh, man's learning and the seat of all of that knowledge. So when Constantinople fell, a lot of people fled into Europe to escape the onslaught of the Turks. All of that knowledge and all of those books came with them right at the time that Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1450. And so now we had a way to disseminate all this information. Also, it's about the same time the Reconquista took place, where all of the kingdoms of Europe combined to force and drive out the Moors from southern Spain and the Iberian Peninsula. At about the same time that Columbus, that was 1492, we all know that year, that's when Columbus discovered the Americas and ushered in the Age of Discovery. And then just a few years later, we had the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in 1517 with uh, Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle door church. All of these things combined to change the basic worldview of the people of Western Europe, to change the way that they saw themselves, the, the way that they made meaning in their lives. And so they moved from a less biblical and religious-based system, a less monarchical-based system, and a less feudal-based system and worldview, and moved into a worldview that used reason and rationality, science, capitalism, humanism, and also the, the promise of human progress, as well as individuality and individual and human rights. 
as the basis for a whole new way of understanding how they fit into the world and how they fit in terms of how they govern themselves. And the ethics that came out of the humanities was also a huge part of the modern viewpoint, the modern worldview. So Hollywood, in the golden age of Hollywood, that would be what, from the 30s through the 50s, basically, they were giving us movies that were modern in the sense that they revered all these institutions that we had built in the modern period, our system of government, our schools, this and that. They conformed very well to that modern viewpoint. And then came the 60s. And everything started to change. Some of you remember how much they started to change. The Kennedy assassination, the British invasion, and music. All these different types of musical expressions and artistic expressions. We had modernism in the arts, which was deconstructing the forms that we had before all of this. And so we have this postmodern, as it was called, after World War II, postmodern viewpoint, where now there are no clear heroes. No good and evil. There was a gray area. What happened to make that change? Well, the first half of the 20th century happened. We were motoring along, and we're feeling pretty good about human progress. But two world war wars later, and the atrocities that happened there, the rise of fascism over so much of the Western world and the Eastern world, Far Eastern world as well, and the nuclear onslaught, all of this combined to destroy our faith in the institutions that we had built, to disillusion us. And so Hollywood is reflecting that. As we get into the 60s, everything is being deconstructed. Everything that was modern is looked at with suspicion and with cynicism. And we have this change to this post-modern era. But the problem is, is that you can't live your life as a negative. You can't just talk about what you're against Eventually, you've got to be for something. And so from the 60s through the, through the turn of the 21st century, we had this postmodern expression in our movies and most of our culture. But something started to change in the 2000s. We started to see movies that are now just more recently being called meta-modern. What does meta mean? Well, it's a Greek word that basically means beyond or in next succession to or to transcend it can mean after. It can mean a whole load of things, and we use it for a whole load of things. But the idea of metamodern is that it is now not just postmodern against modernism. It is now transcending and moving beyond modernism. Now, what we're seeing in the movies then, and you maybe think of some of these, are movies that are looking to find meaning again. But they're doing it in a way that also gives a nod to both modernism and postmodernism. So these movies kind of oscillate back and forth between both genre in a very self-referential way. It's kind of like tongue-in-cheek, wink-wink, see what we're doing here. But we're also looking for meaning that is now interior because we still don't have the faith in our institutions anymore to bring us the meaning that we believed in in the modern period. Where do we find meaning again? It's got to be interior. It's got to be in, maybe in our relationships. We don't know. Now, the, the, uh, the, the uh, offset of this or the manifestation of this are movies that 
seem to not make a whole lot of sense, right? They're jumping all over the place. There's one everywhere, everything, anywhere, whatever. That, that movie is one of them where everything is juxtaposed. Timelines are off, and, and it's hard to make sense of it. But that's exactly the point, because look at our world right now. It doesn't seem to make any sense. All things are jumbled together, and everything is back to front. We're trying to find meaning in a world, and our art is mirroring that. Our movies are mirroring that, trying to find where is the meaning here? If it's not there, where is it? Is it here? And so this is that idea of a return to meaning, because postmodernism was telling us there is no meaning. Metamodern is saying, yes, there is, but not in the way that we thought of it before. In some way that transcends, maybe in spite of the world in which we live, we're still going to find this meaning. And so for many of us, here comes Maverick, kind of a relief, you know? Ah, you know? Unapologetic return back to modernism, back to a simpler and more straightforward set of values. Good guys, bad guys, cheer, rah, rah, all that sort of thing. And so how do we proceed from here? Where do we go from here? Not just in the movies, but in our lives, because this is the world in which we live. It's being reflected in our art forms. But this is the world in which we live. It's confusing. Now, if we're spiritually aware, we realize that our faith is not to be put in our institutions. That's not our salvation. That's not where we can actually rely. But we also need to see our country for what it is. We must live with the institutions that we have. As long as we're breathing here, as long as we're living in groups and in counties and cities and countries, we're going to need those institutions. But we want to occupy what we've been talking about in here as liminal space. Liminal, the Latin word for threshold. To be able to stand in that threshold in that doorway between two worlds, to see our country as it is, to see our institutions as they are, be able to critique them, to criticize them, to work for change when necessary, but at the same time able to celebrate them for what they have given to us and what they continue to give to us and the necessary function that they perform in our lives, both corporately and individually to be able to stay in that space where we can see all of that and we can at the same time realize that as uh, Teilhard de Chardin said, you know, we're not human beings having a spiritual experience, we're spiritual beings having a human experience, that we are spiritual beings and there is that spirituality, that understanding, that second sight layered on top of all of this. And that is what the liminal space allows us to do, to be able to take all of that in and then make our choices accordingly, be able to move accordingly. Critique where we need to critique, celebrate where we can celebrate. And so here we are approaching July 4th, two days away. July 4th is about celebrating our country. All right, This is the 247th anniversary of what exactly? <laughs> what exactly are we celebrating on July 4th? Do you all know what, what it is? Is it the birth of the United States? Is that what we're celebrating? The signing of the Declaration of Independence? The start of the revolution? What is it that we are actually celebrating? 
See, we like to imagine that there are neat, tidy beginnings to things, and we can point back to this demarcation point, but the truth is much messier than all of that. And just a quick rundown. The war, the Revolutionary War, actually started an entire year before. On April 12th, 1776, the, um, uh, I'm sorry, this would be April 19th, 1775, I'm getting my dates mixed up here, the, the battle at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts was actually the first shots fired of the Revolutionary War. And at that time, in 1775, in April, there were few people in the colonies that wanted to separate from Britain. That wasn't the idea. They wanted the rights that they were being denied by the king, but they didn't want to separate from Britain. You'd have to have a hole in your head to want a revolution and all that that's going to bring. A revolution brings chaos. Everything gets way worse before it can ever get better. They didn't want to separate from Britain. But the war itself made the separation inevitable. There was no way to get around it. Now, in April 12, 1776, North Carolina was the first state to authorize independence. So it's almost a, an entire year, actually full year after the war begins, that North Carolina is the first state to authorize independence. Two months later, in June 11th, Congress authorized a committee to draft a statement of independence. And the three that were on that committee, Thomas Jefferson... John Adams and Benjamin Franklin. They were the three who were authorized to come up with this draft. And on July 1st, 1776, that draft of Jefferson was endorsed by nine states. A day later, on July 2nd, it was endorsed by 12 more, but New York abstained, so it was only, there was only 12, not the 13. But then on July 4th, the Jefferson draft was adopted. Now, if you take a look at the image in your handouts, you're going to see just a little image of that draft, and you can see how messy it is. The truth is messy, right? Lots of crossouts and looking at... He wasn't writing like Mozart, who was just getting dictation from God. Everything is messy here, but that's what he was doing. He was writing this draft. This is the actual draft that was adopted on July 4th. And then on July 5th, the day later, New York finally endorsed it as well. So we got all 13 of the colonies. On the 19th of July, the draft was engrossed. That means they got Timothy Matlock, who was an actual calligrapher. He was the one who wrote the document that we now have in the National Archives and, and created the final document out of the draft. And on August 2nd, that engrossed copy was signed by everyone who was present in the Continental Congress. But that wasn't everybody, and the last signature wasn't put on until following year, 1777. So there was a evolutionary process here. There was a whole moving target of events that took place in order to get us to the place where we were actually fighting as a single entity for independence. Now back to our faith history. You know, the truth is messier than we imagine. Jesus is often viewed as a revolutionary, but I think that's putting him in the wrong light. Now, I view him as a revolutionary, but a micro-revolutionary, working with individuals rather than with groups. So when did the Christian revolution begin? 
Okay, we have all these choices. Once again, is it Jesus' birth? Is it his baptism? Is it the start of his ministry? Is it Calvary, the crucifixion? Is it his resurrection? Was it Pentecost? When was the beginning of the Christian revolution? Now, like Americans, these colonists at the time, Jesus wasn't pursuing separation from Judaism any more than Luther was pursuing separation from Catholicism in the 16th century. They wanted to reform their religions. They wanted to reform their institutions from the inside out. Jesus, Judaism, Luther, Catholicism. They weren't looking to separate, but it was just like with the American Revolution. The British, the Jewish, and the Catholic leaders who made separation inevitable. They made coexistence impossible. The leaders wouldn't allow the reforms to take place. They wouldn't give the liberties that were required by the people in their care. So, most Christian scholars would tell you that the church began, was birthed at Pentecost. And this was the moment when the followers of Jesus, and this could have been a moving moment, we like to think of it night and nice and neat and tidy as one time in the, in the upper room when they received the full impact of the resurrection and what that infilling of the Spirit meant. But I'm sure different people arrived there at different times, and there was a point at which there was enough of these leaders, these apostles, who had this understanding that the movement began in earnest. Pentecost. Ah, but again, the truth is so messy. There really was no church the way we understand church. There was this underground movement for really about 200 to 250 years that was growing in impact. But you can't say that it was a church the way we understand church in those first few centuries after the crucifixion. It was slowly changing Roman culture slowly changing Roman religion, but a revolution, that wasn't the intent. It wasn't Jesus' intent. And when we look back, we see it really wasn't the intent of those faithful followers either. The original intent of Jesus, the original intent of the first followers was to change individuals from the inside out, not to try to change society from the top down. In fact, when that actually did occur, when the Christian church became allied with Roman power in the 4th century, that was the moment when the faithful began to flee their towns and villages within the Roman Empire. The desert fathers and mothers fled to the deserts of Judea and Egypt to try to rediscover what this was all about. Because as they looked at their church and what it had become and what was going on, it had become unrecognizable to them. Thomas Merton says that they considered it a shipwreck. Their culture and their church was a shipwreck, and they were just flopping around in the debris in the water with everyone else. And it wasn't until they got to dry land and got a foothold that they could reach back and pull someone else to safety. And so that's what they did. They left when the church became a cultural force allied with the Roman military and Roman power because then it made no sense to them anymore. But at the same time, Parallels do exist between the macro and the micro. The macro mirrors and maps the micro-personal journeys that each one of us takes. And in fact, Israel in the Old Testament is often portrayed as a single person. The entire nation of Israel as just God's son being called out of Egypt. 
and being suckled by Mother God. And so we see that use of a group of people paralleling and being used as a metaphor for each one of our own journeys. So Israel's journey could be understood as a single journey, as God's child. If we want to fight this interior revolution within our own spirit and find our way to spiritual liberty, what can we learn from our national revolution, the one that we're going to be celebrating in two days? If you pull out your inserts, you can follow along. But I want to read just a couple of paragraphs from the Declaration of Independence because I think it's there in Jefferson's words that we can find so much of value that is going to parallel the spiritual journeys that we're taking. He's talking about the nation, this nascent United States. But it can apply to us as well. So in Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, which we know now didn't take place until the next day when it was actually unanimous. But when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Wow. People don't talk like that anymore. They don't make declarations like that anymore, right? And get this, Jefferson was 33 years old when he wrote this. Isn't that amazing? We think of our founding fathers as old guys, but they really weren't. Hamilton was 21. Jefferson is 33. But look what's happening in here. First of all, realize that the United States was birthed in the modern age, birthed in a modern worldview and philosophy. This declaration is assuming that political bands are not divinely instituted. They are not divinely destined. They are not indisputable. This divine right of kings that ordered the medieval world of Europe is out the window at this point. These political bands, these contracts, these alliances exist to serve the people and stand only as long as they're serving all parties. Just like Jewish law, remember? The way Jesus understands it? It had become a monolithic power in itself, but Jesus says, hey, the Sabbath exists to serve man, not man, mankind, to serve the Sabbath or the law. It's there for us. These political bands are for us. So when you think about, personally now, what is holding you in place? Relationships, jobs, living arrangements, group affiliations, are all of those bands, those personal bands, serving all parties? Or are they just familiar? Have they just always been like that? Should some of them be dissolved? Would it be better if they were? Not irresponsibly, but can we take a look and see? These things are not just there arbitrarily. We put them in place for a reason, or they were put in place for us for a reason. It Does that reason still exist? And how hard would it be to break some of them? Is it worth that effort? Be 
these are the questions that Jefferson is asking, the founding fathers are asking about their nation. We need to ask them about ourselves. Because there are human rights that derive directly from the laws of nature and from the God who created nature. The next paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So once again, this focus on the government exists to serve the people. The government exists by the consent of the people. There are these self-evident truths that everyone is created equal with these unalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. You cannot alienate people from these rights. They are there. And what does alienate mean? Well, to estrange, to turn off, to divide, to distance, to isolate, to cut off, to transfer. None of that can happen to these unalienable rights. They are ours. And the state exists to protect these rights and only derives its power from the consent of the government. And when the state fails to protect these rights, to protect these people, the people have a right to abolish the state and start over again. Now, interiorly, each one of us, each of us needs to protect our own rights from ourselves because we have our own limiting beliefs, thought and behavior patterns that come from the trauma of the past, come from things that we learned since childhood that we have absorbed and are now down there in our unconscious that are limiting us. How do we protect ourselves when our own unconscious is keeping us from our rights? When do we know when it's time to change? When it's time to start a revolution if one is actually needed? Jefferson addresses that too. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments too long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while Ill, evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. Put that one on your refrigerator. That is such a huge statement. Think about that. All of our experience has shown that we are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right them by abolishing the forms to which we are accustomed. The devil we know is preferable to the devil we don't. Yeah, it's like that. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. So a revolution should never be undertaken lightly. It's going to give us more disturbance and it's going to get a lot worse before it ever gets better. 
And we will all suffer injustice. We will all suffer tyranny. We will all suffer our own dysfunction interiorly, right? In our own families and personal relationships for as long as we possibly can. Out of fear, out of inertia, out of procrastination and self-preservation, and also out of good sense. Because you don't throw off things lightly. But sometimes you need to take the look at where we can go back to healing, go back to the rights that we have, life, liberty, happiness, for us, presence. In order to get to the point that we finally make deep changes, we have to hit that Calvary moment. We have to hit the moment just like the first followers did when Jesus was crucified and they thought everything that they had lived for for years was gone. Everything was irretrievable. And that set them on a new course. Each one of us has to get to the same place where we realize that everything that we believed in these structures and these institutions and these frame and friendships and families, whatever, if they can't be moved and they have become more toxic than the good that they give us, is it time to make a change? How do we know that when we're back down to ground level again, when everything has been stripped away, when it seems that everything is lost? That's the moment that a revolution can look less frightening than the alternative. Less frightening, less painful than the status quo. Even though this is written for a nation, a government, it applies so well to our personal lives. We see a better path for ourselves, or we see the dead end of the path that we're on much sooner than we're ever going to be willing to take that new path, to make the change, to actually repent, which means to move in a different direction, because we fear the revolution. We fear the unknown, and with good reason. There's a lot of stuff out there that we don't know about. We'd rather suffer the familiar than risk the unknown. It can kind of work into a sort of spiritual codependency if we're not careful, right? Where we continue to enable and preserve the status quo at all costs, however dysfunctional it may have become, for fear of losing what we have, right? Sometimes we tell ourselves, this is as good as it gets. Well, we don't deserve any more than this. We won't survive the transformation. We won't survive the revolution. And so we tell ourselves these things to keep ourselves in place, to keep our defensive walls up. Think of the Hebrews who left with Moses in the Exodus, right? A few weeks, months out in the wilderness, and they're crying over the leeks and their onions that they used to have, you know, in Egypt. Remember Lot's wife leaving Sodom and Gomorrah? looking back over her shoulder and being turned into a pillar of salt, metaphorically. Because why? Because she wasn't willing to move forward. She was still looking back over her shoulder. What does Jesus tell us? He says, anyone who puts their hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Sounds kind of harsh. But the point is, it's a, it's a, it's a mindset. It's a worldview. If we aren't really sold on where we're going, on really letting go of the old and limiting ideas so that we can move forward, how are we going to get there? 
When Jesus says you're not fit for the kingdom, it doesn't mean that he loves us any less. He's just simply saying you can't go where I'm going, which requires a complete relinquishment of everything that you're still hanging on to. That's the truth of it. What convinced the colonists to revolt against a global superpower? We don't think of England at that time as a global superpower, but that's exactly where they, what they were. You know the saying, the sun never sets on the English empire? It didn't. It was a worldwide global empire that they finally built. What convinced them to think that they could actually win against this superpower? Well, maybe they weren't convinced they could win. But generations of abuse that was unchanging no matter what they did or tried to legislate, that they had tried everything within the status quo to secure the rights that they needed and, and wanted as a people, and they realized that the more they tried, there was only a hardening of the resistance against them. That's what finally convinced them we have to go this route. What will convince us to revolt against our own spiritual codependence, against our tendency to stay in place, even though we know that it's time to move. What will convince us to engage a path that we know at the outset is going to be harder than just staying put, at least at first? Well, Jesus gives us a promise of new life. There's that. The freedom from fear. But what is it in us that is going to clear the decks for that promise to ring loudly enough for us to take those first few steps? This is what Jesus is trying to teach us. Because Jesus was a personal revolutionary, I believe. Jesus was an interior revolutionary. He was trying to get us to see what it looked like, first of all, for someone to wage this interior war, to let go of the old world, embrace something new, and the changes that it created in relationship, in love, in understanding, in the way that we deal with our institutions. And he's trying to get us on the same path. He risked everything to pursue his unalienable rights. And what rights were those? Well, Jesus called his unalienable rights Abba, his father, the intimacy that he had in that relationship. He called his unalienable rights kingdom, the quality of life that comes from being completely immersed in this new worldview, this new way of seeing the oneness of everything. And all of that, Abba and kingdom, included life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of course. And of course, the ultimate unalienable rights was God's love itself, this degreeless love that showers indiscriminately on everyone. It can't be cut off. It can't be alienated. It can't be divided. It can't be estranged. And Jesus is trying to set his followers and by extension us on this same path. Now a few of his followers actually made it to the interior revolution. We like to assume that everyone that heard Jesus' word ran to it. But it was actually a small subset, just like always. Maybe the 80-20 rule applies here as well. But a few of his followers did make it. They fought those interior battles 
from the Calvary moment of the loss of everything that they thought to Pentecost, which is a full realization of what the resurrection was all about, what this new life actually meant. They actually broke through to freedom. They broke through to freedom from limitation. And now it's our turn. This path of Jesus and Jesus' followers shows us the way. The path of Israel shows us the way. The path of our own nation's birth and liberation shows us the way, if we're willing to see how this works. The U.S., as we said, was birthed in the modern world and the modern world view. We, they, believe supremely in their own philosophy, in their own culture, in their religion, and in themselves. And we in the modern period still do. We believe in our culture, in our philosophy, in our religion, in ourselves, in our institutions. And this is, a sim- this is an example of a stage two of spiritual growth. And I know we've talked about the four stages of spiritual growth, at least from Scott Peck's point of view. But the second stage is identification with the group, with the nation, with the church, with the religion, with the, the belief system itself. And so all of our identity goes from self, which is stage one, to the group, which is stage two. And all of our hope and all of our reliance is placed there. And this is what the modern world represents. Stage two of spiritual growth. It is the complete reliance on the group and the group think. But then the atrocities of the 20th century break our belief in that system. And we move into the third stage of spiritual growth, which is the loss of that certainty. That wilderness period that Jesus goes through, the wilderness period that each one of us is going to need to go through, the deconstruction of everything that we thought we knew. But like we said, you can't live that as a negative indefinitely. We need to recreate meaning somehow. How are you going to do that? Well, you can run back to stage one or stage two, right, if you want to, or you can try to go on. Now, our country is experimenting with a going on, at least in some cultural levels. But make no mistake, that's what this culture war is all about, isn't it? Where do we derive meaning? Left and right have very different ideas of where meaning comes from. We, as followers of Jesus, have a different idea of where meaning comes from. And all those ideas and belief systems are clashing in our nation right now. And it's getting more and more heated, and it will continue to do so especially as this next election cycle ramps up. You're going to see that in spades. But where do we find meaning? Now, metamodern is trying to find meaning from beyond both modern and postmodern, saying that there is something, maybe it's more interior. Maybe it's a combination of the two. I would like to think that metamodern is trying to establish a liminal position in between the two and find meaning from a source that is closer to what we would believe closer to what we believe Jesus is leading us toward. Finding meaning in a meaningless and increasingly meaningless world, a non-rational world as we look at it, is our task right now. It's always been our task, but I think there are times in human history when it's more at a focal point, and I think we're living in one of those times. So where is Jesus trying to take us? He starts with deconstruction, No doubt about it. 
We have to strip away the things we think we know. We have to be willing to sell everything that we own. We have to be willing to drop our nets at the shore. We have to be willing to take up our cross and deny ourselves. All those metaphoric images are aimed at the necessity for us to deconstruct, to move from a stage two to a stage three. But this stage three is not a destination. It's just a transition. It's a cleansing of the limiting ideas that have been holding us back from stage four. And stage four is the realization of oneness with everything. That love really is the glue that holds our reality in place. Love understood as identification with the beloved. Clearing out those ideas that are keeping us from that realization is our Pentecost moment the realization of the oneness with everything. We've got to go meta, understood as transcending, understood as going beyond. Our old ideas, our old beliefs, even as we incorporate them as needed. Being a human being is an interesting balance and kind of a paradox. The balance between now and not yet. How do we do that? How do we work for not yet and still be satisfied with now? How do we work between the horns of these macro institutions and what we know as a private person? This is what it's all about. We still need our institutions, but we're not going to identify with them anymore. They're tools that we use to accomplish what we need to accomplish as a people living in communities, but the tail doesn't wag the dog anymore. They are not who we are. And though it's going to feel great from time to time to fall back into them, fall back into those old beliefs, like Maverick, watching Maverick, we can't continue to look back on our old limitations with yearning and with longing, or we won't be able to move forward to the ultimate oneness that is our true meaning. That takes the ongoing interior revolution of spirit, the ongoing boldness that it takes as a way of living life. I wanted to end just by reading the closing paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. See how this strikes you. Jefferson writes, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved and that as free and independent states, they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. I always like to imagine King George reading that. <laughs> what color his face turned. Because that's as bold as it gets. Yeah? 
I mean, you read these words. What chutzpah from a 33-year-old, huh? From little colonies facing down a global superpower. As clear and as unequivocal, unequivocal as it could possibly be. This is what going all in looks like, if you, in case you were wondering, right? Leaving nothing on the table. When we are as convinced as they, as convinced as Jesus, as convinced as Francis of Assisi, as convinced as Martin Luther, that the cause is just, that the need is present and clear, that to delay any longer is pure dysfunction, when we are as convinced as they, in our inability to continue as is, of our inalienable right for God's love, then we can be as bold and willing to undergo the revolution of transformation. Now it's going to look different in detail for every single one of us, but it's going to be the same in the shape and the effect that it has on our lives. And once we know that we hold an unalienable right to a love that we can never lose, then the revolution has begun. The truth is messier than we know, messier than we want to imagine, but it's still truth, and it will set us free if we are willing to let go and move forward with the kind of boldness that's established here. And so on Tuesday, as you're having the barbecue and watching the fireworks or whatever you do, I hope a part of you will keep this in mind and let it settle into a deep reverence for what it is we are celebrating and then take us the next step to the interior revolution and what that represents. Let's pray. Father, we're here. We're here and we're trying and we realize there's still more on the table that we're leaving and we want to be all in. We don't exactly know what that looks like and we don't exactly know what that's going to cost, but prepare us more and more as we go forward day by day for the moment when we really can completely open ourselves to you, to be fearlessly vulnerable in your presence so that we can experience and realize exactly what it is that you have for us in your love. Thank you, Father, for everything that you've given us, your constancy, your love. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.